0: Welcome to Morning Commute, exploring advances in acute myeloid leukemia, frontline care of patients with FLT3 ITD. In this episode, the rationale for more potent FLT3 inhibitors for AML, enter quizartinib. Dr. Harry Erba and Dr. Justin Watts discuss the quantum first trial and how these results are changing the treatment paradigm for AML. Morning Commute is developed by projects of knowledge powered by Kaplan. And is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Senkyo. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash aml3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The url can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Erba is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Watts is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and is Chief of the Leukemia Section at the University of Miami in Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Erba will begin the discussion. Dustin, welcome back.
1: In our last podcast, we discussed FLT3 inhibitors midostaurin and gilteritinib, but now there's a new kid on the block, quizartinib, which is expanding our treatment capabilities, particularly for our older patients um, with newly diagnosed uh, FLT3 ITD mutated AML. So let's dive right in and let's let's recap what we discussed in in podcast number two, where we discussed the newly diagnosed flip 3 mutated AML patient and the current a state of treatment uh, landscape uh, up to recently. Justin?
2: Sure. Um, hey, Harry. Glad to be back. Um, yeah, so the current landscape, which, and this is a bit of review from the last podcast, in, in younger patients with newly diagnosed flt 3 mutated AML um, really includes two options, intensive chemotherapy with 7 plus 3 induction, followed by consolidation and or alginate transplantation with either mitostarin or now resartanib. There are notable differences between these two FLT3 inhibitors. Mitostarin is a type 1 inhibitor and a first-generation FLT3 inhibitor. It hits multiple kinases, and its mechanism of action allows it to work on both FLT3 tyrosine kinase domain as well as the ITD mutation, because it's a competitive inhibitor at the ATP binding site. Quizartinib, on the other hand, is a second generation, so more potent and much more selective FLIP3 inhibitor, and it's a type 2 inhibitor. It only works in the ITD mutation because it binds the inactive conformation and just completely shuts down the potential for activation of the receptor can't dimerize, so ligand-dependent or ITD-mediated constitutive activation is just turned off. In terms of the data, the efficacy data with myostarin, this study was done one in only younger patients, less than 60 years of age, and again included both ITD and TKD mutations, the majority being ITD, but a significant percentage around 20 or more percent were TKD mutated. And this drug was approved in combination with chemotherapy based on a relatively modest but real and clinically significant survival benefit of about 7% or so with long-term overall survival with myosaurin being around 50% and closer to 40% on the placebo arm. In terms of um, and how that's changing the landscape, I will pass that one to you.
1: Thanks, Justin. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, we now have a second choice in the newly diagnosed patient uh, with FLT3 ITD-mutated AML. Uh, Mitostorin is uh, still our um, go-to add-on drug to 7 and 3 and high-dose citerabine consolidation for a patient with FLT3 TKD. But as you said, Quizartinib is a type 2 inhibitor and only active against FLT3 ITD. The um, uh, drug Quizartinib uh, was approved in combination with induction and consolidation and continued as a maintenance for up to 36 cycles, almost three years, um, in patients with uh, FLT3 ITD mutated AML that was previously untreated. And that occurred um, in July of this year. So let's look at the quantum first study that led to the approval. And in this podcast, I'm really going to focus on the efficacy and try to put the data in perspective to the old kid on the block, uh, mitostaurin, and how we uh, might think about these drugs. So the quantum first study was an international randomized uh, phase three study, uh, looking at the addition of quizartinib as a two-week course of therapy as a single dose each day, days 8 through 21, with induction chemotherapy, donrubicin or idorubicin with cytarabine, followed by high-dose R-C consolidation with nib for two weeks, again, 40 milligrams once daily for two weeks, and then continuation for patients who remained in remission. The primary endpoint in the study was overall survival. Now, what's interesting about the design of the study is that Because it takes time to get back the uh, FLT3 uh, mutational status, the design was such that patients could be registered and a sample submitted at the time of diagnosis, but they could start standard 7 and 3 chemotherapy um, while waiting for um, the ITD mutational status to come back. And in fact, the largest reason for screen failures in this study was that many of these patients turned out to be FLT3 ITD. Negative. However, if the patients were uh, between the ages of 75, I'm sorry, 18 and 75, with a FLIT3 ITD allelic frequency of 3% or greater, they could be randomized to getting quizartinib NIB 40 milligrams daily, days 8 through 21, or placebo. And they would maintain that uh, randomization assignment through consolidation and continuation. During consolidation, patients could go on to an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And for patients over the age of 60, the dose of the cytarabine was, uh, during consolidation was dropped from 3 grams per meter squared for six doses to 1.5 grams per meter squared for six doses. Now, a, a major criticism of this study is that the control arm is not what Justin just told us was um, what you just told us. Justin was the standard of care, mitostorin. And that's because this study actually started as an international trial in 2016, about six to eight months before the FDA approval in the United States alone of mitostorin in the same population of flt 3 itd mutated AML. And so uh, I, I was uh, uh, the co-chair of the steering committee, and we made the decision not to amend the study because this was an international study um, it would have been hard to do, and many countries did not have mitostorin available. The other thing to keep in mind is uh study accrual ended in August of 2019, again, just six months after the approval in the United States of hypomethylating agents with venetoclax. So the options for our older patients were limited and um, may have contributed to the selection of patients who were over the age of 60 for this study. Nevertheless, Um, uh, The study went on, primary endpoint was overall survival. What was different um, then about uh, the study is that uh, 40% of our patients in the study were uh, 60 years and older. Most of the patients were from uh, Europe and Asia. Um, About half of them had an NPM1 mutation. And the primary endpoint of the study was met, the um, hazard ratio. Uh, in favor of quizartinib was 0.78 for overall survival, with median survival of 15 months with placebo versus 32 months with quizartinib. Now, what's remarkable about this number, uh, uh, the hazard ratio of 0.78, is, as you said, Justin, that was the hazard ratio in the ratified trial. But it's really important to remember that this study had 40% of patients who were over 60 that were not included in the ratified trial and only had the poor-risk ITD-mutated population, not the TKD-mutated population. And still, there was a statistically significant improvement in the survival of patients with a two-sided p-value of 0.03. And even if we censored at the time of allogeneic transplant, there was a benefit of quizartinib with a hazard ratio of 0.75 in keeping with the primary endpoint. And we're gonna come back more to the benefit um, of transplant in this population in uh, further uh, discussions in our next podcast. But let's now turn to the response rate. And the response rate overall was higher with quizartina than placebo. So the CRC, which included CR and CR with incomplete count recovery was 72% versus 65%. There's no p-value on this estimate, and but the CR rates were pretty identical, 55%. The reason for the higher CRC rate was a higher number of patients with CRI with Quisartinib, probably due to the mild suppressive effects of Quisartinib contributing to the slower count recovery. But importantly, the duration of that CR was three times longer with Quisartinib than placebo, 39 months median versus 12 months. And relapse-free survival was uh, more favorable in the quantum first uh, study in the quizartinib group with a hazard ratio of 0.6, again, with a tripling of the median relapse-free survival from 14 months to 39 months. If you look at the cumulative incidence of relapse in CR1, um, at two years, it was 31% with quizartinib versus uh, 43% with placebo. Now, putting this in perspective um, to the um, ratify trial, the cumulative incidence of relapse in the entire group of patients in the uh, ratify trial was um, 40% at two years, so higher. And that included patients with that were uh, younger and with the TKD mutation as well. If you look at the hazard ratio for Survival in younger versus older patients, there was a um, clear benefit, especially in the younger patients. And in that population, um, the hazard ratio uh, for patients under the age of 60, the hazard ratio was 0.68. So, a 32% reduction in the risk of death in patients under the age of 60 with only the ITD, compared to a 22% reduction in the risk of death for both ITD and TKD mutated patients under the age of 60 in the ratified trial. However, something to keep in mind, and I'm going to turn this back to, to uh, Justin in a second to address, is we still have a problem in older patients. And the, the hazard ratio is 0.9 for patients over the age of 60 in favor of quizartinib. And the benefit, if any, um, it was not statistically significant, um, but the benefit that may have been seen with cruzartinib was clearly offset by a higher rate of early mortality in the first three to six months with cruzartinib compared to placebo in patients 60 um, and older. And so, although it's very difficult uh, to do this analysis um, comparing two studies, we're not supposed to do that, they both had the same control arm um, uh, in terms of treatment, placebo, but they were very different in patient populations. And I think when you really compare apples to apples in these two studies, there's clearly um, a signal for um, uh, efficacy with the addition of quizartinib to 7 and 3 um, and high and then continued as a maintenance. So with that detail on efficacy, I'd like to turn it back to uh, get Justin's thoughts on you know, what should we be doing for older patients? This study included older patients. They may not have benefited as much. Um, It had a longer maintenance period too. So I'd like you to talk about the role of maintenance in AML. Sure. Thank
2: you, Harry. Um, There's so much to dig into here. I think what you just said about comparing the two studies, you know, obviously, you know, that's not ideal, but we don't have any other options right now. So you can't just ignore the data. Um, And I think what you said about the control arm is very true. The, and I think that's further supported about them being very similar, almost identical. Um, in that the outcomes on the control in the control group, on both studies were, were very similar, with about forty percent or so um, long term survival. Um, maybe a few percentage points better with, on the quantum first trial, but very right around forty plus percent. Um, In terms of older adults, and this is probably the most important thing I think about these two studies and the differences, as you said, 40% of patients on quantum first were over 60, and no patients treated on the ratifying trial were over 60. Um, That's a huge number, and we know those patients do more poorly. They have higher early mortality, which we'll touch on with chemotherapy in general, and possibly also with the addition of a myelosuppressive TKI. Um, They have worse disease biology in terms of clonal diversity, commutational burden and types of mutations. And the FLT3 ITD, at least, may be more likely to be subclonal and not the only driver leading to different mechanisms of resistance that may emerge, as opposed to a younger patient who may have the more classic kind of NPM1, flip 3 and DMT3A D mutation, for example, where, you know, flip 3 inhibitors really had a huge advantage there, um, I think. And so, it's just the fact that those older patients were in there, and we saw basically the same overall survival benefit, almost exactly the same on these two studies. It's incredible. And again, also, we, you know, the the the, um, the quantum force only included the higher risk, as we know, ITD mutation. And when you look at, and you miss in the hazard ratios, but when you just look at the curves and the kind of four year, kind of the longer term estimated overall survival in the under 60 population on quantum first, it was 60%, right? Not 50, which was the entire population. And when you look just at the older patients, it was about 30%. And that was 30% on both arms, not statistically significantly um, different, although there may be a slight benefit. That being said, um, Speaking of older patients older than 60, I think the quantum first trial proves that intensive chemotherapy is the valuable and probably the best option in the more fit patients in that age group, right? Because there is a chance to be cured, right? There is is still a chance to be cured with or without transplant, obviously more likely with transplant. Um, And so I think that's very important because the alternative to a 7 plus 3 plus TKI induction strategy in older patients and again, Midostar wasn't studied in that population, but it is, as you know, sometimes done, and there are some other older studies that did look at Midostar in older adults. But the alternative is, is venetoclax and, and azacitidine-based uh, therapy, and, and typically that is just venetoclax and azacitidine or d as the kind of standard-approved frontline approach in older adults, regardless of the mutation, but including the three mutations. And we know that it is active there in terms of response rates, quite active. Um, but that the duration of response and overall survival is not the same as the rest of the population. Um, it's a little better than ASA alone, especially with TKD, right? The risk there is, is not the same. It's with the ITDs that have, you know, median overall survival of 11 or 12 months, not the 15 months plus, um, kind of in that intermediate benefit group to ASA, with P53 being the worst and flip 3 and or RAS mutated being intermediate and all the rest doing very well. Well, with Vinasa, you know, with median survival of 25 months plus, plus. Um, and that's about half of the older adults. Um, so Vinasa is an option, but if you have a potentially curable patient, transplant eligible, uh, you know, I, this, I think, the quantum first data supports its use in those patients with the caveat that doses may need to be reduced, um, and there may be other strategies to mitigate toxicity there that we can touch on with Afrizartinib. You know, in terms of investigational approaches in older adults, um, you know, the, the, with the, you know, gilteritinib is also approved in the relapse refractory setting for any age, right? So there are multiple studies looking at adding gilteritinib to veneta in that older adult population, and we'll have to see how that plays out and how that might compare to um, a seven plus three plus pazartib approach in the ITD population. Um, lastly, in terms of the maintenance period, another significant difference between these two studies is the maintenance period, where with Crizartin, it, it was almost three years, and with Midostar, and I believe it was 12 months, and importantly, maintenance was allowed to continue after allogeneic cell transplantation on the quantum first trial as well, and I think there are some very interesting data that we're going to touch on regarding the effects or benefit of transplant in the quantum first study, as well as on RATIFY, um, and on quantum first, the impact of MRD. Um, both post induction in terms of overall survival as a surrogate for that, and pre transplant and the effects of maintenance, whether it's positive or negative, um, by MRD, by NGS for FLIP3ITD. So I think there's still a lot to chew on here. And I was just talking about transplant. So maybe I'll pass back to you now to discuss transplant in FLIP3ITD mutated patients.
1: Okay. Thanks. Uh, what I take away from that is the quantum first study was the first trial to include patients up to the age of 75 in this randomized trial of looking at a flit 3 inhibitor and was still a positive study with the addition. Um, and, and yet, though, many patients are not fit for intensive chemotherapy and we really need to continue clinical investigation to come up with better options. However, I think the quantum first study shows that if a patient is fit for intensive chemotherapy and you're thinking of a curative approach, uh, the benefit would be um, with quizartinib in addition to intensive therapy. And in the next podcast, maybe we talk a little bit more about um, uh, uh, management of uh, potential toxicity. Let's now move to um, uh, the role of transplants, and I think it's generally accepted in uh, definitely in the United States and probably most parts of the world, that if a patient has a FLT3 ITD mutation, that they should be considered for allogeneic stem cell transplantation in first remission uh, due to the high risk of relapse. Now, that's not to say that FLT3 ITD has not moved into the intermediate risk, but as Justin said, um, as you said in a prior podcast, that is a subset of intermediate risk where uh, I think most of us would really feel strongly about considering allogeneic transplant. And of course, this was done on, on the study. So we looked in the study. Um, uh, I asked the statisticians to show me the data for patients who ultimately were selected to go on to allotransplant uh, in first remission and those who did not get an allo transplant first remission. You might remember from the RATIFY trial, those who got a transplant in first remission um, had a great benefit from mytastorin, but they also showed that patients who did, who had a, a transplant, said outside of first remission, there was no benefit. So those would be patients who likely relapsed and then, you know, um, got a transplant in second remission. In the quantum first study, the patients who went on to get an allo transplant in first remission um, had. Um, a benefit from the Quisartinib. The hazard ratio was 0.59. Now, quite honestly, the, the uh, hazard ratio uh, confidence intervals did overlap one, um, but it went from 0.33 to, 0.0, um, to 1.06. What I thought was really instructive is that in the patients who did not get a transplant in first remission, and I can't think of a reason why there might be a patient getting quizartinib versus placebo where the doctor would choose based on something of whether to get a transplant. So to me, this is important data that showed a benefit of quizartinib and here the hazard ratio was 0.61. So a 39% reduction in the risk of death and actually the hazard ratio, the confidence intervals around that hazard ratio did not overlap one. And um, we saw then a benefit, uh, even in patients who didn't get a transplant, but importantly in patients who did. But it begs the question, as we brought up in the RATIFY trial, what is the basis of this benefit? If the response rates are very similar between placebo and mitostaurin or placebo and uh, quizartinib in these two studies, why do we see a benefit of the FLT3 inhibitor um, in patients In both of these studies, um, especially if they went on to transplant, but in the quantum first, even if they didn't go on to transplant. And so what we did in uh, the quantum first study is we collected peripheral blood or bone marrow on patients at the time of remission. And we assessed whether uh, the FLIT-3 ITD was still present using a next-gen sequencing MRD assay. And if we used a uh, cut point of 10 to the minus four with reduction in the FLIT3-ITD variant allelic frequency, there was a survival benefit of achieving that regardless of the treatment. And that's important. This is the first time a prospective study showed that the MRD status actually predicted outcome regardless of which arm of the study they were on. Now, if you then look at how patients did if they got quizartin versus placebo, the median uh, FLIT3-ITD variant allelic frequency was 0.03% with placebo and 0.01% with um uh And um that was um that had a p-value two side of 0.02. So 0.02. So statistically significant and importantly, more patients on the quasartnib arm actually had completely undetectable FLIT3 ITD um by this assay following the intensive Induction chemotherapy, and you have to imagine that uh, remissions may have become uh, deeper um, over time. And so clearly, there's a a survival benefit with this drug, uh, quizartinib, in addition to intensive chemotherapy consolidation and continued as a maintenance. I think the FDA approved quizartinib as a maintenance, even though there wasn't a re-randomization to specifically look at the role of maintenance quizartinib. Quisartinib is known to have single-agent activity, and that may have impacted on the FDA's decision to approve Quisartinib as a maintenance uh, for up to uh, three years, to 36 cycles, compared to what they did with midostaurin, where they didn't approve it, uh, even though the design of the trials, the design of the trials was very uh, similar. And when I look at the data from my, the ratified trial and the quantum first study, I cannot explain away the survival benefit based on the percentage of patients who went to transplant uh, in these two studies. It seemed to be very similar. Uh, So, you know, I I think um, what um, the RATIFY trial did was show us a proof of principle with a first-generation, less potent, less specific flithery inhibitor, and um, the quantum first now shows us that, yes, indeed, when you use a more potent and specific flithery inhibitor, you actually can get even uh, deeper responses and better long-term survival than what would have been seen with a first-generation drug. Um, but there are other FLT3 inhibitors that are being developed, and uh, Justin, maybe you w- would like to tell us a little bit about, about that.
2: Yeah, thanks, Gary And just, I agree with everything you said. I think the biggest take-home for me is that, you know, the study... Quantum first, again, just confirms the role of aldenic essential transplant with both arms doing better, right? Brezartinib or placebo if they got a transplant. Um, and notably, with the addition of brezartinib, not only did the entire population do better, but even in patients who did not go to transplant, when you look at the curve, the survival curve sensors for transplant, there was still a benefit to brezartinib in those patients with, I think, the long-term survival around... around um, or so. So there's still an impact. And I think that ties into both more and deeper MRD responses, as you alluded to. And there was also a a slightly higher composite CR due to the CRIs, Um, getting those deeper remissions early. And then also, probably a second benefit from the maintenance period with kind of preventing relapse um, in the transplant setting or in the patients who did not go to transplant um, in a subset of those. In terms of other FUT3 inhibitors under development, probably um, the other one we all think of or that first comes to mind is gilteritinib approved for relapsed refractory AML as a single agent. It's also been studied with venetoclax and relapsed refractory AML. But also what about in the frontline setting, right? What about adding it to venetoclax and azacitidine? There has been um, very encouraging early work by MD Anderson looking at the triplet combination showing very high response rates, especially in untreated patients, older unfit adults, for the most part. And this combination, though, um, as we've seen them report out, there can be even more myelosuppressive activity than already seen with Vinase, with the addition of girl um, And so the dosing really has to be um, done quite carefully and monitored quite closely, and that's still being worked out. And I think how this might compare to a chemo-based strategy with crizartinib, um, we don't know yet. It's going to be very interesting to see out. We haven't touched much on mechanisms of resistance. And maybe, you know, during on the next podcast, we can touch there as well when we talk about safety. And th- there's there's one other one that comes to mind under a clinical med- investigation. And I should also mention first, though, that there are also studies ongoing using gilteriznib, right, with intensive chemotherapy, right, which have not read out yet, but there's a phase two pre-COG study in the United States and a larger randomized phase three study. Uh, both studies are randomized, but a larger randomized phase three study um, in Europe comparing intensive chemotherapy, gilthrinib versus intensive chemotherapy, minus star. So, we'll see how those data be out as well. Um, and I'll lastly pass to you to uh, touch on frenolinib.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the other one, uh, Flt3 inhibitor that's um... Uh, moving ahead in or is in phase three study uh, with intensive chemotherapy is crinolinib again the control arm with mitostorin so a um, a current um, uh, control arm at least with another FDA approved drug with mitostorin there um, and you know we saw the early data uh, that's been presented and uh, uh, and published by Eunice Wang and and colleagues uh, looks very impressive. Um, But again, we have to wait for the completion of that study to see um, the benefit. And of course, what we haven't talked about here um, is the downside, the toxicity. We touched on myelosuppression. There are other things to talk about. And I always say this to uh, uh, the fellows that I'm training: is that is that if you do not follow the uh, clinical trial in how it dealt with dose adjustments and and toxicities, you may not ever see the efficacy of the agent that they saw in that clinical trial. So, obviously, it's a double-edged sword, and you know we need to clearly consider how to manage the toxicity. Because, as you said, Justin, we're adding a drug that is myelosuppressive. So, um, why don't we uh, why don't we get to that in our next podcast? And with that, I think uh, we'll uh, say goodbye for now. Okay. Good.
0: Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML3. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.